Some of you might have watched the uh, clouds rolling in this morning. Uh, they came across Crawfordsville at about uh, shortly after 7 o'clock uh, this morning, and, and uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. I, I stepped out of my office just to go out and, and look at what it looked like a shelf cloud moving through. Um, it, it actually, from my perspective, it looked like a big gray cloud with a white chasm through it. And, and uh, the, so the, the clouds in the atmosphere were doing some really f- interesting things this morning. Of course, with that, I expected rain. I expected, you know, our circumstances are going to change here. Uh, wondering, uh, did I clean out those gutters enough? No, it overflowed. But I was reminded of how small I am. There's a lot of things that just a change in the weather reminds us of how small we are. Uh, I started listening. Okay, is there going to be a tornado siren going off? Or am I going to need to get folks out of bed early this morning? God causes us at times to feel our weakness to remind us of his sufficiency. To, to feel our weakness, to remind us of his sufficiency. And I don't just mean his sufficiency for what we need, for what we know that we need, for what we want, for, for our small picture of what we need or think he needs to be for us. But, but what a glorious thing it is to be reminded of his sufficiency to do what he intends to do. Because it's always so much bigger than what we have in mind. To be who he claims to be. To, to show his might. To show his power. And we're reminded from Judges 6 through 7 that he uses weak warriors to show how mighty of a God that he is. We learned last week about the Midianites and all these bands from the east from the other side of the Jordan that would sweep in just as harvest was, uh, just as harvest, just as Israel was harvesting their crops and just as they were, were, were their, their livestock were bearing new offspring and such, these, these bands of, of swift moving raiders would move in, set up camp, and just devastate the land and devastate their harvest, devastate their livestock, devastate all that they were depending on. And this was because Israel was walking away from God and they had been told, this is what's going to happen when you do that. And we looked at the fact that when walking away from God, we should expect God's loving discipline. And when walking away from God, we should expect devastation from idolatry. Whenever, I truly believe this, whenever we're walking away from God, we're walking into idolatry. And, And we saw that the irony that Israel walked away from God pursuing the, the quote-unquote blessing of these fertility cults, blessing on their, their wives' wombs, blessing on their livestock, blessing on their crops. And yet what they were getting was desolate fields, all of their calves and, and lambs run away with and gone. They were left worse off because they had walked away from God's sufficiency. We also looked at the fact that when walking away from God, we should expect 
God's response to our repentant cry. Of how God had sent a prophet into the land. Letting them know this is happening because you walked away from me. And we see this morning of how God raises up a judge. He raises up a weak warrior to show how mighty he is. And we see that starting in verse 11 of Judges 6. where He says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the terebinth. I don't know where that is, but at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. That's the only time I'm going to try to pronounce that one. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, there's a lot of different opinions. that We, don't, we aren't given um, specifically or, or uh, exactly who the angel of the Lord is in Scripture. I believe that he is God himself because of the way that he's worshipped when he appears and the way that he accepts that worship. And um, I would go as far as to say he is pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, Christ before he took on flesh. So pre-incarnate. And so he appears, but, but it's an interesting situation that he appears to, and maybe some of you are aware of this. When you're threshing grain... You want to be on top of a hill. You want to be in an area where there's wind. Because part of threshing grain, once it's been kind of trampled down, whether using oxen with like a, a, a sled that they're dragging across it or something, uh, that grain itself is hard. That, that, that part of the wheat that you want that is, is hard and, and it's not going to get crushed, but everything around it is brittle and soft. And so when they would... When they would crush the the stalks of wheat the the grain would separate from the husks and from from the chaff all that stuff that when you see a a combine go across a soybean field and you just see this cloud behind it that's all chaff that's all stuff that's not needed just blowing off off in the wind so when they would thresh grain they would want to be up high where there's a wind likely to be blowing because because they're gonna, they're going to take that grain and they're going to throw it up in the air and the grain itself is heavy enough that it's going to fall straight down but the chaff is going to be caught by the wind and blown off to who knows where okay so that's where you want to thresh grain now a wine press is generally like like you'd want to thresh grain like say up here on the stage here a wine press is, is like the baptistry over here, okay? It's going to be a deep well. It's going to be a spot where, uh, you know, is maybe naturally is going to be more depressed into the ground, and so they only have to dig out a little bit more and put stone in there and stuff, and, and they're going to put grapes or olives in there, and they're going to crush those things, and they're going to want it to stay low, Because you don't need wind. So where do we find Gideon? He's not up on the hill. He's down in a wine press, threshing grain. This is more of of the devastation or the fear, the result of of the, the consequence of Israel walking away from the Lord 
that he's afraid to thresh his grain up where he should because the Midianites are in town. And guess what they'll see? It's almost like sending smoke signals off. They're going to see this chaff blowing in the wind. They're going to be like, there's some grain. You guys hungry? This is where we find Gideon, afraid, cowering, hiding in a wine press, needing this grain, but afraid of the wind causing too much of a spectacle. You know, I don't know. You can walk through a field of wheat and you can grab some grain and rub it like this and and blow it off and you can do a little bit. Maybe he's just like working with a little bit of it at a time. It's like, this is ridiculous. That's where we find him. And here, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. That is ironic. That is, by all uh, earthly estimations, an incorrect statement of Gideon. And it goes on. So Gideon starts to complain. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I don't think Gideon knows who he's talking about here. I mean, he'll he'll figure out at the end of our passage exactly who he's talking to here. But I don't know if he even knows he's talking to an angelic being yet here. But, but he's complaining and he's blaming. There's no recognition here of Israel's responsibility. It may be that Gideon was never told of Israel's responsibility. It may be, as, as we see happen over and over again in the Old Testament, we see it happening in the Gospels when Jesus is trying to get the Jewish people to repent, and especially the Jewish leaders, and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Don't you see this temple? We've got God in a box. He's not going to do anything to us. It it may be that that was, at this point, what Gideon's understanding was of of being God's privileged people. And God just wasn't fulfilling his end of the bargain. But we continue on in verse 14. It says, And the Lord turned and said to him, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I Do not I send you? So I think at this point, Gideon's probably, if he doesn't realize it yet, he realizes he's talking to someone supernatural here. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, this is Gideon speaking again, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said to him, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes 
from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and broth, and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiz- I guess I do have to pronounce that again, Abiezerites. Isn't it interesting here, Gideon had asked for a sign that this was really the Lord talking to him, and, but he wasn't, at the same time, when he realized it was the Lord talking to him, he's overcome with fear. It's almost like it registers with him at that point what this could mean for him to see the Lord face to face. We, we're looking here at weak warriors move from faith to fear. And that don't get this to mean only weak warriors have to move from, f- from fear to faith. Thanks. From fear to faith. It's not, it's not saying, well, if you're, if you're not a weak warrior, that means you're always walking in faith. No. Remember, God uses weak warriors. Those are the warriors that he chooses to use to show his might. And the ones that he chooses to use are going to walk, work, are going to move from fear to faith. How do we know that Gideon moved from fear to faith? He's included in Hebrews 11 in what we call the hall of faith. He's a hero of our faith. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Gideon being one of those. He had, at some point here, a faith, an assurance of what was being hoped for. This is, the same ver- this is the same term used about Jesus when it calls him the exact image, the exact imprint of God. That faith is the exact imprint on us of what we're hoping for. It is as if what we are hoping for is already on us. And Hebrews eleven thirty two through 34 tells us, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That's what we'll see Gideon do as a, as a weak warrior who's strong in faith, in his mighty God. 
being made strong out of weakness, becoming mighty in war, and putting foreign armies to flight. And we're reminded by the, uh, the ESV study Bible, they demonstrated faith at times that allowed God to conquer kingdoms through them. It doesn't mean that these were amazing men of faith for the rest of their lives. You could read, we're only looking at Judges 6 and 7. Sadly, Judges 8 and 9 is Gideon walking in his own strength. We come here to Judges 6 and 7 understanding Israel as being God's privileged people of faith on the earth at that time. And Israel's destitute situation called for faith. It called for faith that God was still there, that God was still the long-suffering God full of steadfast love, the covenant-keeping God with his people Israel. David Lloyd George says, faith is idle when circumstances are right. Only when the circumstances are wrong is one's faith in God exercised. Faith like muscle grows strong with exercise. And that's what we see is, is called for, for Israel, from Israel. You want to say, well, what right do they have to be people of faith when they're behaving the way that they are? It takes faith to repent. It takes faith to turn away and turn to God again. But faith in what? Faith in the truth of God's love. Faith in the truth of God's ability. That's why I still believe the simple child's prayer can answer any temptation or trial. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him. Faith in those things. And salvation in itself is an exercising of, the, of faith in the truth of the gospel. That God really does love the world so much that he gave his only son. So that whoever believes in him, that he has the power to make it so that they will not perish, but have everlasting life. Faith in God's love, faith in God's power. And to grow in Christ is to grow in faith. So as God's privileged people of faith now, we can learn from Israel as God's privileged people of faith from then. We can learn from Gideon's experience to move from fear to faith. Believe what God says about you. Believe what God says about you. The angel of the Lord tells him, and it, it doesn't appear from what he's looking at, he calls him, oh mighty man of valor. It got, it, continuing on there, it, seemed, it, it appears like Gideon ignores the fact that God was speaking to him in the singular, because that's what he does. You, singular, almighty man of valor. And Gideon turns to talk about Israel in a corporate sense. If the Lord is with us, no, he says, I said, I, the Lord be with you, Gideon. Now, I want to clarify something here, okay? God is not seeing this in Gideon. That's what our humanism, 
our humanistic, man-centered philosophy wants to communicate today. That God looked at Gideon, and Gideon couldn't see it in himself, but God saw it in himself. That is an exalting of man. That is not what the scripture does. God saw what he would make Gideon into. He saw a weak warrior that was about to be empowered by a mighty God. God was not seeing something in Gideon and thinking, now that's a guy I could use. The only thing that he might have seen in him was maybe in this moment, Gideon will realize just how powerless he is because he's afraid to thresh his grain where he should be threshing it. We see this in Jesus with, with his relationship with Peter. It's not uncommon for God to rename someone. In John 1, Jesus, it says, Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. Because that's what Jesus was going to make Peter into. But I'll tell you this, it took Pentecost to do it. It took the indwelling Holy Spirit to do it. We can look at ourselves as God sees us. If we have received Christ as our Savior, that means we have a relationship with him. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us. And Scripture goes on and on to tell us who we are in Christ. And this is one of those opportunities that I have to send you home with a list of who I am in Christ. And you can pick that up this morning on the donut table. I don't know what else to call it. But... You can get a copy of, of the list of who I am in Christ. Why am I secure in Christ? Why am I accepted in Christ? Why am I God's child? Why is it that I can never lose that? Adopted by him. And it may feel assuming to take God at his word. Are you asking? Where are all his promises? Where are you, God? If, he, if you are his through Christ, he's already told you. He says, I'm in you. You're my child, my friend. You're my ambassador to this world. And we stand on that in faith. And understand that your unbelieving neighbors and family members and co-workers They were created for and with this purpose to be these things as well. To be in Christ, to be his child, his redeemed child. But they need to hear it from you. That this is what they were created for. So Gideon complained, and where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? And interestingly, the Lord used Moses to do that, to bring them up out of Egypt. And what was Moses' protest? He's like, me? Are you kidding? Can't you find somebody else? I can barely get a sentence out. I stutter so bad. And also, Moses later told God, if you're not going with me, with this people, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. Don't leave me. Because Moses knew that God's presence was vital to Israel's 
success. He knew that God's presence was vital to his success as a leader. And Gideon, too, was promised God's presence when he threw up the objection saying, not me, how, how could you choose me? We read that in verse 14 and following. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I challenge you to be a weak warrior with a mighty God. Move from fear to faith. Trust in God's presence. To move from fear to faith, trust in God's presence. Here we see command, uh, Gideon commanded, go. And as was common for, for people of that day, and we see this with Jacob when he sees the the, uh, la- the Jacob's ladder, you know, he has that dream. He wakes up from that dream, and what does he say? Surely the Lord is in this place. That was a common idea. There's holy places. Get close to the holy place. Well, I don't know if Gideon would have been thinking, this is a holy wine press. But God says, go, and I will be with you. That's kind of a new concept in that day and age, okay? That's why they would have shrines in a certain place, temples in a certain place. It was a holy place. This is a holy God that puts his presence with his people and he can do anything, anywhere, because he made it all. Warren Wiersbe says, it has often been said, that God's commandments are God's enablements. Once God has called and commissioned us, all we need to do is obey him by faith, and he will do the rest. God cannot lie, and God never fails. Faith means obeying God in spite of what we see, how we feel, or what the consequences might be. You know, the Corinthian church... uh, probably had the same, uh, I think this is common for all people that God calls to be his people and to be his ambassadors and to be about his work. Corinthians were probably thinking, you know, we need some encouragement here. And Paul writes to them and he's not flattering them. But they were told, don't worry, God uses the unimpressive weaklings. They're told in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But here's the encouragement. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what we'll see God tell Gideon when he's telling him to winnow down his forces. He says, I'm going to get you down to a small enough number that there's no way that Israel is going to say, by our own hand, were we delivered from the Midianites. 
God uses weak warriors because he wants to show that he is a mighty God. Let me ask you, what if the sun wasn't visible? In other words, what if we were getting everything we get from it, just not the visible light of the sun? Okay, we're still experiencing its warmth, its gravity, all the other benefits. We we would have to believe someone's idea that it's there. You know, even though we can't see it. But yet we would feel everything. We would still trust in its daily presence because it's always been there. Do you not see how we live with so many of the blessings of God? We live with so many of the, the outpourings of his presence. But yet at the same time, we have to apply faith that it's him. That it's him that's doing it. That it's him that's protecting. That it's him that's providing. And trust in his daily presence. And God has a greater impact on our world than the sun, but just can't be seen. But he's promised his presence. And as we talked about when we were in Galatians 5, God's presence can kind of become old hat. I heard it said in a podcast I heard listened to this week that uh, too many churches have replaced the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. We think, praise the Lord that I've got God's presence with me in His Bible. That I can draw near to God in His Word. That I can learn from God on the pages of this book. All of those are true. But the evangelical church in large part has replaced the Holy Spirit with the Holy Scriptures. And like the sun in our life, even if it were invisible, we have to be reminded of his presence, his indwelling presence. It's what we receive when we receive Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit to interact with, to be empowered with, to be, to be comforted by, to be, to be drawn by, with, to be taught by to be directed by. Move from fear to faith as you trust in his presence. And when his presence is there, this is what his being all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present means. His presence, when his presence is there, and he's ever-present, but, but when we know Christ as our Savior, we have his presence indwelling us in the form of the Holy Spirit. He's there with all of his knowledge and all of his power. It's not like you get a little bit and you get a little bit and you get a little bit. That's what his, his ever presence, all, all, all powerful and all knowing nature means. It's never depleted. It may go against our self preserving tendencies in this process and stuff, but also to move from fear to faith, worship God sacrificially. And this grates against us a little bit because along with our humanistic ideas of, of man-centered Christianity and thinking that God looks at someone and says, now that's a guy I can use, we also have this idea that we look at God and say, what do you have that I can use? But the fact is, is that God is worshiped sacrificially. And, and that's when we go, ooh, I'm afraid of, you know, telling God, use me. Uh, what, what might he use? I might have some use. 
for what he's going to use. But, but see what happens to Gideon. Says, so he goes on and he says, if I find favor in your eyes, show me a sign and, and let me go and get the, some, something and set it before you. And the word here for present means to offer, to, it's the same word as an offer. I'm sorry, it's not present, it's present. Bring my presence and set it before you. It's the same word for an offering as it is for a gift. It could be what Israel's, in sa- Israel's sacrificial system would be a free will offering. Or could refer to tribute offered as a present to a king or to, or to another superior. And it goes on and says, then he says, I will stay until you return. And he w- he, Gideon goes into his house and he makes unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. This would have been enough to make bread for his whole family for several days. This is a stack of cakes here, folks. Everything that it, that it took to, to do as well as dressing uh, the meat and all would have taken us uh, more than an hour. It would have taken a few hours here. A lot of work went into this. A lot of investment. A lot of, I don't know if Gideon was thinking, you know, don't worry kids, will there will be leftovers, things like that. But it continues on, and the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he said, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that it was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. I believe that we have a picture here. This is our illustration of biblical worship. Worship in its most simple definition as I've shared before is for us to to rightly respond to who God is. And we see this picture a couple other times in the Old Testament. One is when Elijah is is showing the prophets of Baal in Israel how God is the one true God and fire comes from heaven and consumes all of the offering. We see it happen when Solomon and the priests are dedicating the temple to God. They set the temple there and fire comes down and consumes the offering. This is a picture of biblical worship and it is a picture, and this is what I mean when I say it is sacrifice. There's no manipulation going on here. There's no, maybe I can get something out of this. These cakes are really nice. God takes it and it goes away. And our temptation is to stop and look and think, I could have used that. But I don't think that's how people end up feeling when they worship God in sacrifice. This is directly opposed to idolatry that treats, can treat even God as an idol. Because notice God doesn't stick around and go, oh, that was fantastic. Okay. Now that you've fed me, ask me what you want. He's not a genie. You know, this isn't a version of rubbing the lamp. He, gone. And does it according to his character. Does something according to what God would do, because Gideon's like, well, I know what I just saw. It 
was for the glory of God, and it was the only purpose of what God, Gideon, offered. A.W. Tozer says, All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. When God's plan causes you to sacrifice, when it causes us to sacrifice what is precious to us, we can trust in his purpose. For his glory, for the highest good, for the greatest number, for the longest time. I don't think that we are equipped to know what meets all those qualifications. Eternal glory? All the saints that will be in heaven for eternity can we qualify what we think we should have to sacrifice when it comes to that big of a purpose I don't think so so I think we should just give up on qualifying I'll go this far but not no more I'll give this much but no more I'll give you this but just not this because I really don't see how you'd have a purpose for this and I got to see the purpose. That's ludicrous. It's ludicrous when you're talking about the mighty God. And as God's privileged people of faith, we can learn from Gideon's experience. And I challenge you move from fear to faith and rest in God's peace. You know, when, when, when God speaks to him and says, don't worry, you shall not die. That's basically what we as sinful people get when we're in the presence of God. That's what would happen to any person that entered into heaven that is not clothed in Christ's righteousness, having received Christ as his Savior. They die instantly being in the presence of God. God says to Moses, I cannot show you my glory. I cannot show you my face lest you die. But why didn't it happen? Because God gave peace. He granted peace. Understand that peace is not just the absence of hostility. A a biblical uh, study of peace through the scriptures is not the absence of hostility. It's the presence of of good relationships. It's the presence of well-being and health and prosperity. It's not like being just saved from a fire. It's not like being able to walk through a fire and and, um, being like, okay, I have peace. This fire is not touching me. It's like having a pool party, okay, and being in a bigger than an Olympic-sized swimming pool And there's, yeah, there's a fire around, but we're floating in this awesome water. This is refreshing. Okay, that's probably a poor picture, but it is is God's peace that he gives is is floating and being drenched in a well-being, good relationship with him. Somebody who's intent on his glory for the greatest purpose, for the greatest amount of time, for the greatest number of people. And we can trust that. He grants us peace in Christ. That is the only way that we have peace with God. He must grant it. And all we must do is receive it. 
but yet the enemy can still cause us to think that we're not at peace with God. He can still cause us to think, and again, this goes back to why do you need to know who you are in Christ if you know Christ is your Savior? Because the enemy can make you think that you woke up, you stubbed your toe, you remember what you did yesterday, Uh uh-oh, you're not at peace with God today. Now, might there be something that you need to confess to him to enjoy your relationship with him and to not let that get between you and him on your level? Yes. But his peace with you is there. Respond to him in faith. You are at peace with him. And those that don't know Christ, they ache for peace with God and in their own lives. They've rationalized away any God that would hold them accountable to anything. Because what does that mean? It means they're not at peace with him. If there's any standard, they're not meeting. And for ourselves, we're promised a peace that surpasses understanding. We're promised a peace that is better than knowing anything that you want to know. We're promised a peace that's better than knowing why you're going through what you're going through. We're promised a peace that's better than your doctor knowing why you're going through what you're going through. A peace that surpasses understanding. A peace that that when we have it, we can say, Lord, all those requests that you explain this to me, don't worry about it. Thank you for your peace. And that comes through relationship with him by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Take God up on it. It's promised. It's expected. Glorify God by growing in his peace. I'll close with what Spurgeon said. A little faith will bring your soul to heaven. Meaning the faith of a mustard seed will bring salvation, bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are weak.